0: That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis, and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com On the eve of the First World War, the Royal Navy would build a class of ships that would go on to play key roles in not just one world war, but two. They were seen as a revolutionary change to the design and construction of capital ships, the first to mount 15-inch guns, and the first battleships to match the speed of the battlecruisers. But it seems unlikely that anybody involved with their creation would have believed that they would go on to become valuable assets to the Royal Navy for the next three decades. One of the five ships of the class would go on to receive the most battle honors of any ship in the history of the Royal Navy. Jutland, 1916, Atlantic, 1939, Narvik in 40, Norway, 40, Calabria, 40, Malta Convoys, 41, Mattapan, 41, Crete, 41, Sicily, 43, Salerno, 43, Normandy, 44, Volcarin 44, Biscay, 44, and Mediterranean, 1940-1943. The ship's name was the HMS Warspite, and this is her story. During this long episode, we will discuss the entire life of the ship, from the design of the Queen Elizabeth-class battleships that would be launched in 1915, through the First World War and Jutland, into the great unknown of the interwar years, the refits of the 1920s and 30s, and into a war once again in 1939, and then finally to Warspite's final campaigns in 1945 as an old, battered, and broken ship. This episode of History of the Second World War is brought to you by all of the podcast's amazing supporters on Patreon. If you currently support the podcast, or have supported it in the past, or have considered doing it in the future, thank you. As with most of the naval innovations after 1905, the Queen Elizabeth-class battleships can be traced back to the introduction of the Dreadnought in 1906. It is challenging to put the revolution caused by the Dreadnought into proper perspective. The introduction of the ship came at a point where the Royal Navy and the German Imperial Navy were in the early years of what would eventually become a full-blown naval arms race. The German construction efforts made the Royal Navy feel under threat for the first time in many decades, even if those feelings had little basis in the actual ability of the German fleet to pose a serious threat. When Admiral Jackie Fisher was installed into the position of the First Sea Lord, he brought with him a sweeping series of reforms that he hoped would bring the Royal Navy out of the 19th century and into the 20th. He also had a very specific vision of the future of naval combat. Core to this vision was what would eventually become known as the Battlecruiser. The two most important aspects of this new class of ships would be to take the guns of a battleship and match them with the speed of a cruiser. As with all designs, having the biggest guns but also a high top speed meant that there would have to be sacrifices in other areas, and in this case, it would have to come at the expense of protection. Fisher accepted this fact and put faith in the greater speed of the ships to be able to disengage from any action that it did not wish to participate in. The new battlecruisers would then be combined with the growing power of the torpedo, which in Fisher's mind made the slow, plodding battleships obsolete. Even if the battleship would eventually become obsolete, the Royal Navy would still need to build them in the near future to match up with other navies, and this would result in the Dreadnought. There were many revolutionary concepts involved in the Dreadnought's design. The most noticeable were the guns. Before the Dreadnought, most capital ships mounted a mix of gun sizes. For example, they might mount four 12-inch guns and then four 9-inch guns, and then several smaller pieces of smaller caliber. The dreadnought would remove much of the secondary armament to focus more space and more weight on only the guns of the largest possible caliber, in this case, 12 inches. This gave the ship a much greater total hitting power when compared with any other ship afloat. There was also an emphasis on the speed of the ship, with a speed of 21 knots, which was a solid 2 knots faster than any other battleship afloat. It should come as no surprise that Fisher, who so highly valued speed in his battlecruiser concept, also believed that battleship speed was one of the most important aspects of naval design, one that was required if the Royal Navy wanted to be victorious in future naval battles. He would say, quote, The sole reason for the existence of the old line of battleship was that ship was the only vessel that could not be destroyed except by a vessel of equal class. Fundamentally, the battleship sacrifices speed for a superior armament and protective armor. It is this superiority of speed that allows an enemy ships to be overhauled or evaded that constitutes the real difference between the two that being the battleship and the battle cruiser. It is evidently an absolute necessity in future construction to make the speed of the battleship approach as nearly as possible that of the armored cruiser. This speed was only achieved through the use of geared turbine engines, the first to be mounted on a capital ship. In Admiral Bacon's judgment, he would say, quote, no greater single step towards efficiency in war was ever made than the introduction of the turbine. Previous to its adoption, every day steaming at high speed meant several days overhaul of machinery in harbor. All of this was changed as if by magic. Turbines also provided a much greater endurance at maximum power. With the old reciprocating engines, they were limited to being very short bursts of top speed, but the Dreadnought could manage it for hours on end. Along with the Dreadnought would come the Invincible-class Battlecruisers, which would contain many of the same innovations. They would have a few less 12-inch guns, far less armor, but they would have a top speed of 25 knots, four more than the Dreadnought. These new battlecruisers were the first attempt at Fisher's idea for the future, and it would force a response from every other navy. The famous saying goes that when the Dreadnought was launched, it made all other capital ships obsolete, which was somewhat true, even if many of those pre-Dreadnoughts would see service into the First World War. It would also cause an intensification of the naval arms race that would eventually lead to the war. Spite, The Germans would copy many of the innovations found in the Dreadnought, And this also made the Royal Navy's pre-dreadnoughts obsolete. This may seem obvious now, in the modern day, when we see new technologies that seem to revolutionize industries almost all the time. But at the time of the dreadnought, its introduction was somewhat controversial. The Royal Navy had a completely insurmountable advantage in pre-dreadnought capital ships, almost more capital ships than the rest of the world combined. But in these new ships, these new dreadnoughts, they had reset the counter- to one. This would greatly intensify the naval arms race with Germany in the years before the First World War, because the German navy saw a glimmer of hope that they were within striking distance of the Royal Navy, if not in total ship numbers, then at least in this new type of ship, which seemed to be far more powerful. While both navies began to build dreadnoughts, they also did not stop innovating on the design, although in smaller ways. There were problems with some of these earlier ships. For example, it would later be determined that the dreadnought had went too far in terms of stripping secondary armament, which made it vulnerable to destroyer attacks. This was rectified by adding back in some of those smaller guns, but without compromising the number of larger weapons. On the side of the battlecruisers, which the Germans would also begin to build, it was understood that the early versions perhaps sacrificed too much armor to gain their speed, and so their designs would be evolved to try and compensate for this problem without removing their greatest asset. The culmination of this evolution would be the Queen Elizabeth class, which represented the first real combination of the battleship and the battlecruiser, and would be the zenith of pre-war designs. However, before these ships could become a reality, the first lord of the Admiralty, McKenna, was replaced by one Winston Churchill. Churchill would enter the Admiralty with the expressed objective of reducing naval spending. However, during his time at the Admiralty, he would not accomplish this goal. From the very beginning, he would lean heavily on Fisher, who had been removed from the Admiralty a few years earlier, and partially due to the discontent caused by his many reforms. On his very first day, Churchill would send a note to Fisher that read, quote, My dear Lord Fisher, I want to see you very much. When, I, when am I to have that pleasure? You have but to indicate your convenience, and I will await you at the Admiralty. There are many criticisms that you can levy against Churchill, both at this time and throughout his life, but one personality trait that you cannot lay at his feet is a lack of enthusiasm or a fear of getting involved in decisions. During this time at the Admiralty, Churchill would, under the tutelage of Fisher, become involved in all kinds of discussions and decisions. He would play a role in a sweeping set of reforms for the living conditions aboard ships and the treatment of sailors on the lower decks. He would also oversee a pay increase for those sailors for the first time in in decades. As one Royal Navy magazine would say, quote, No first lord in the history of the Navy has shown himself more practically sympathetic with the conditions of the lower deck than Winston Churchill. In all of these changes, Churchill was conversing with and influenced by Fisher, and they had incredibly frequent correspondence. When it came time for the 1912 naval estimates, there was a new design that would incorporate many of the innovations that had been slowly building since the introduction of the Dreadnought. Many of these innovations would go on to be standard features of battleships until well, until they stopped being produced during the Second World War. The Neptune class introduced superimposed turrets. The Orion class put all the turrets on the center line. The King George V class added director control to the secondary batteries. The Iron Duke class brought back 6-inch secondary armament and featured anti-aircraft guns. All of these innovations were occurring year after year, because at the height of the naval arms race with Germany, the British would produce up to 6 capital ships every single year. Even down years at this point would see 3 ships laid down. This meant that innovations were coming incredibly quickly as every year designers were given the chance to make changes to the previous year's design, even before they were completed. The Queen Elizabeth class would bring all of these together and add several more. Much like the Dreadnought, the most noticeable innovation would be the guns. Previous Royal Navy classes had mounted 13.5-inch guns. This was the original plan for the new ships as well. However, the United States and Japan announced around this time that they would begin using 14-inch guns on their ships, and the Royal Navy wanted to ensure that their new ships had the largest guns afloat. This resulted in the decision to include the first ever 15-inch guns on the new ship. Increasing the size of the guns had some clear benefits. With the size of guns measured in diameter, an increase in diameter of even a single inch could represent a massive increase in shell weight and explosive power. A shell fired from a 12-inch gun weighed about 850 pounds, but a 15-inch gun would weigh over twice that at 1,900 pounds. Much heavier shells meant a much greater hitting power as well, and the much larger total explosive force was impressive. The heavier 15-inch guns could fire shells with somewhere around 30% more explosive energy than the 13.5-inch guns that they were replacing the larger guns would also mean a greater range, with the range of these new guns being 23,000 yards. This range was at the time mostly theoretical, because actually hitting something at those ranges in 1912 would have been almost impossible. The problem with the 15-inch guns was that, well, they didn't actually exist, or at least they had not been built and tested. There was also no turret that they could mount them on, and instead the turrets that would be used were still in the design phase. The typical process for the Royal Navy was to build a test turret and fit the new guns in it and then put that turret on a test ship to do some test firing before they mounted them on a new class of ships. Instead, these new guns would be expedited so as not to delay the construction of the new class of ships. This added a good deal of risk, and in fact, the first time that the new turrets would be tested would only be after the new class of ships was launched. These new guns and turrets would also force the ships to be larger and heavier, or as Ian Ballantyne would say in his excellent work Warspite, quote, the bigger the guns, the bigger the ship. And these weapons would each weigh 100 tons, basically made of two gigantic tubes, an inner and an outer, with 170 miles of steel wire sandwiched between. The turrets would be mounted and each weighed 550 tons. If all this wasn't enough, Churchill was informed that a full load of 915-inch shells to feed the new battleship's eight guns would reach a thousand tons. End quote. That's a uh, that's a lot of weight. The innovations did not end with the size of the guns. A core part of the new design was a jump in speed over previous classes, which would give these new battleships the speed of British battle cruisers. To accomplish this, a controversial change would be made. Up until this point in history, the Royal Navy's ships had been coal-burning, just like every other navy. Britain had access to some of the world's best coal, and it had been a key advantage for the nation over the previous decades. But as ships got larger, and as steam engines aboard ships grew and grew more and more powerful, coal became a larger and larger problem. Loading coal on ships was time-consuming, manpower-intensive, and the coal itself just took up a lot of space. It also required a large number of crew members to simply move the coal through the ship from where it was stored to where it was needed. On the Lion-class battlecruisers, a hundred men were constantly involved in moving the coal to the engines. More importantly for the new battleships, it simply was not powerful enough. There were limits to how much heat could be generated by coal aboard ship and the Royal Navy was reaching the point where it could not extract more power from coal given the space constraints inherent with all naval construction. There was another option, though. Oil. And it would solve many of the problems present with coal. The ability of oil to produce heat was much greater than coal, and the same volume of oil could produce drastically more steam than that volume of coal. It was also easier to load and store aboard ship, and then to transport around the ship as needed. Due to this greater efficiency, it would also give the ship's much greater range, or in this case, a much greater speed. Along with it being more efficient and easier to use, oil would also save space aboard ship, allowing for more boilers to be fitted and crew spaces to be expanded. It was in fact oil that would allow the warspite to reach 25 knots. The switch of the Royal Navy's largest and most powerful ships over to burning oil was controversial, though, and brought with it some logistical problems. The British Isles did not have any significant source of domestic oil. Now, the British Empire did, of course, have access to such things, and the government would buy a controlling interest in the Anglo-Persian oil company to ensure supply, so on a worldwide scale, the problem was not access to oil. The major problem was that that oil had to be transported back to Europe, adding a good amount of risk to the ability of the Royal Navy to keep its ships fueled in times of war. This risk had never been present, and this was the first time that an enemy could cut off the ships of the Royal Navy from the fuel that it needed to function. Politically, it was also seen as something of a betrayal of the British coal industry and the miners that worked within it. But even with these problems, it was difficult to argue with the vast technical benefits provided by the switch, and to manage the transition, Churchill would bring Fisher back to the Admiralty. Churchill would go before the House of Commons to gain support for the new Queen Elizabeth-class ships, and he would need to justify their greater cost at a point where fiscal concerns about the spending of the Royal Navy were growing, but the benefits of the new design were obvious to almost anyone. The final design displacement of the Queen Elizabeth-class ships was 31,500 tons, although the warspite would come in at 33,410. To achieve this weight without sacrificing speed, the designers would remove one entire turret that had been present on previous designs. But even with two fewer guns and with the entire center turret removed, the 15-inch guns on the new ships would still output more total shell weight, which is just a testament to the power of the new, larger guns. The larger, final displacement of the ships, including warspite, was caused by design changes that had to be made based on the speed of the ships, which required a greater stiffening of some areas at the front of the hull. Being overweight caused the ships to sit lower in the water than expected, which meant that some of the armor plating sat below instead of on the waterline. This problem would not be addressed until torpedo bulges were added after the war. The warspite would be laid down on October 31st, 1912, and would not launch until a year later on November 26th, 1913. The ship would then finally be commissioned in 1915 with a crew of 951. The introduction of the Queen Elizabeth-class ships into the fleet represented an important shift for the Royal Navy. Before 1915, the battleships and the battle cruisers had been separated by design decisions, and their roles within the fleet had diverged. The Battleships, with their greater armor and slower speed, were seen as the hammer that would eventually strike the enemy fleet, meeting the enemy battle fleet in a slug match. The battle cruisers, with their lighter armor and higher speed, were seen as fleet scouts, which would sweep the enemy lighter ships from the sea. However, in the years before the First World War, the temptation to use the battle cruisers as simply more guns for the battle line would prove to be irresistible. The battlecruisers were not fit to engage enemy battleships. Their lighter armor would be a huge liability, which would prove to be decisive during the war. But because they had the same size guns, their role would shift over time, and instead of staying away from the enemy battleships, by 1914 the plan was to have battlecruisers join the battleships once the two fleets came into contact. This transition of the role that the battlecruiser would play in the fleet would be solved by adding these new battleships, which would have enough armor to stand up to enemy battleships, but could serve the same purpose in terms of scouting as the battlecruisers. The planned introduction of the Queen Elizabeth class would also activate plans to begin to disband the battlecruiser squadrons in 1915. The existing battlecruisers would then be split up and put into cruiser squadrons throughout the Navy, which would bring them back far closer to their original purpose of sweeping enemy cruisers from the sea the start of the war in 1914 intervened though and instead the battle cruisers would stay with the grand fleet throughout the war with some disastrous consequences warspite would join the fleet in early march 1915 and would receive her full crew complement a few weeks earlier one of the new crew members would write quote, "i immediately felt that i would be at home and happy" this happened to be so throughout the time i served in her she was commanded by captain philpotts and we were in good hands being commanded by such a gallant gentlemen. During trials in August, the warspite would reach a sustained speed of 24.5 knots. Then in mid-September, the first of many accidents in the ship's long life would occur when it ran aground off Dunbar at Rosseth. It was early on a foggy morning and the ship's crew were more concerned about enemy submarines than hitting bottom. The hull would be damaged to a point where it would require two months in a floating dock for repairs. Then in December, another accident would occur where the Warspite and her sister ship, Barham, would collide on a fleet exercise. The Warspite's signal officers had misinterpreted Barham's signals, which read to make 8 knots, and instead they thought it said 18 knots. This resulted in the two ships coming together and crushing Barham's bow and shearing Warspite's port anchor. Both ships would eventually be repaired, although there were serious concerns for Barham immediately after the collision. Before the fateful day at Jutland, the Queen Elizabeth ships, which were all working together as the Fifth Battle Squadron, would be sent from the Grand Fleet to join Admiral Beatty's uh, battle cruiser squadrons. The battle cruisers had been moved from Scapa Flow to Rossith earlier in the war to put them closer to the German coast and to give them the ability to react to a German sortie in a more timely manner. However, the ability of the battle cruisers to practice their gunnery was somewhat limited. And so in 1915, with the arrival of the Queen Elizabeth ships, a change was made. It was decided that the 5th Battle Squadron, including the Warspite, would swap places with one squadron of battle battlecruisers. This would allow the battlecruisers some time in the north for exercises with the entire fleet without diminishing the power of Beatty's command. This would be the reason that the 5th Battle Squadron, under the command of Rear Admiral Hugh Evan Thomas, was under the command of Admiral Beatty during Jutland. The full story of Jutland is beyond the scope of this episode, but at a basic level, the story of the battle is that the German fleet sortied out of base, and the Grand Fleet, warned by British Signals Intelligence, sailed out to meet it. The speedier battlecruiser force under Beattie would be the first British ships to make contact with the enemy, and would begin a gun duel with the German battlecruisers. The two battlecruiser forces, joined by the 5th Battle Squadron, would begin a running battle as the German ships moved towards the main body of their fleet, and the British chased them. It would be when the high seas fleet was encountered that the story would really get interesting for the warspite. To understand why, it is important to give a bit of backstory. The two main naval forces, the battle fleet and the battle cruiser squadrons, were led by two very different admirals. Admiral Jellicoe, the commander of the battle fleet, was an admiral that expected his captains to execute orders exactly as written. If an order was given to turn left and make 12 knots, you turned left and you made 12 knots, regardless of almost any other consideration. While this limited the decision-making of the captains, it also gave them the assurance that if they were required to do something, they would be ordered to do it. Admiral Beatty was quite different. Within the battle cruiser force, there was a general expectation that Beatty would give the other ships an idea of what he wanted them to do, and they were given a good amount of latitude in terms of how they actually completed those tasks it was expected that the battlecruiser captains, and especially the admirals that led the squadrons, would use their own judgment to choose the best course of action. These two very different command styles had a long history in the Royal Navy, dating all the way back to Nelson and beyond, and there had been quite a bit of arguing in the decades before 1914 about which one was optimal. Caught in the middle of all of this was Rear Admiral Evan Thomas, who commanded the 5th Battle Squadron, and who was far more experienced with Jellicoe's leadership style and had not been under the command of Beattie for long enough to fully acclimate. When Beatty's ship encountered the German battle fleet, their scouting mission was accomplished, and so their task was to run away from the German fleet at top speed. Beattie would then order his squadrons to turn away from the oncoming German ships, The battlecruisers would interpret Beattie's order as doing an about-face, with each ship turning immediately, and then following the ship that had previously been behind them. Evan Thomas would interpret the order to turn his squadron, but to maintain order. This meant that the first ship would execute the turn, and then each ship in order would turn in roughly the same spot, and so they would maintain their previous position in line after the turn was complete. At a theoretical level, these two types of turns were very much by the book and were both completely valid. However, in this case, with an enemy fleet bearing down on them, Evan Thomas's method put the 5th Battle Squadron at much greater risk. Evan Thomas understood this fact and he knew that executing the turn might prove problematic, but he believed that it was the order that he was given and that he should execute that order as given this confusion misinterpretation or misjudgment would be well discussed after the battle was over but at that moment to the people on board the ships involved it didn't really matter because as each ship executed the turn they would come under fire from the german ships and one crewman on the warspite would later record quote very soon after the turn i suddenly saw on the starboard quarter the whole of the high seas fleet at least I saw masts, funnels, and an endless ripple of orange flashes all down the line. How many, I didn't try and count, as we were getting well strafed at this time. But I remember counting up to eight. The noise of their shells, over and short, was deafening. Felt one or two very heavy shakes, but didn't think very much of it at the time, and it never occurred to me that we were being hit." End quote. Fortunately for the men aboard Warspite, the turn was made without the loss of the ship, although each ship would receive no small amount of enemy fire. When the 5th Battle Squadron was able to rejoin the rest of the fleet, Warspite would experience a problem that would haunt the ship for the rest of its life, but would also play a critical role in building up the ship's fame. When it came time to turn back into line with the rest of the fleet, Warspite would turn its rudder and then it would jam. This resulted in the ship taking two full circles before it could be corrected. Both of these full circuits were made within the range of German ships, and the warspite would be hit by at least 13 heavy shells and several 6-inch shells as while executing the turn. This turn also inadvertently distracted the German ships from their attacks on an armored cruiser, warrior, which was badly damaged by previous fire. The story would be told that Warspite had purposefully distracted the Germans to save the smaller ship. This was not true, but it made for a very good story and would make the ship famous. After the rudder was fixed, the damage caused by all the German fire resulted in Evan Thomas ordering the ship to proceed directly back to port, rather than continuing on with the chase of the German fleet. This surprised many of the crew, including those who had been manning the guns during the engagement. One part of the experience of of being aboard these ships while in fleet actions and being fired at by the enemy that's really hard to properly convey, especially in text format, is the complete lack of information that many on the ship had while the ship was fighting. For example, those in the turrets who had entered the battle ready and willing to finally get involved in a large fleet action had went through the battle in a flurry of activity but they were also in the most heavily armored piece of the ship, almost like armored cocoons. And so after they disengaged from the battle and the gunners were ordered out of the turrets, they were shocked by the amount of damage that they found around them. But while the damage appeared at first glance to be extensive, it would not prove to be serious. When the ship arrived at Rosith for repairs, the reception that it received was somewhat confusing for the crew. What they did not know was that while they'd been moving back to port, news had preceded them that the Grand Fleet had suffered a huge defeat at the hands of the Germans. Midshipman Fell would later write that, We were received at Rosith with very, very great disapproval by the local people. They were all in mourning black hats and black armbands. They all felt that the Grand Fleet had suffered complete defeat, and that some ships, like the Warspite, had run away. Both of these assertions were of course not true. The British fleet had lost more ships and men than the Germans, including three battle cruisers. but they were far from having been decisively defeated, and of course the Warspite had also not cowardly run away from the fleet in a time of need. When more information was known by the public, the story of the Warspite shielding the warrior from German fire would become the stuff of legend. That the story was not entirely true was far less important. There would be long and drawn out discussions and, and committees and reports and grievances and arguments about what happened at Jutland. These controversies would result in many books and, and many pages written about them to this day, and I guarantee you that almost whenever you are listening to this audio, there's probably somebody else writing another one. But while all this swirled around the 5th Battle Squadron and how it was commanded, the fact remained that the ships had proven themselves in combat. The Warspite had displayed that it could dish out punishment as good as any other ship, and they could also take punishment and keep fighting. In many ways, the weakness of the British battlecruisers when subjected to the fire of heavy guns just proved the fact that the design decisions that had led to the Queen Elizabeths were the correct ones. The Warspite would be under repair for two months after the battle, and would only rejoin the fleet at Scapa Flow at the end of July 1916. Her place in the battle would be worldwide news. For example, in November 1916, Scientific American would print a story about the battle that would say, quote, At Jutland, Warspite was hammered unmercifully, and by all the rules of the game should have gone down a hopeless wreck, but the Warspite did not sink. Very much to the contrary, under that tremendous fire, her engineers set right her steering gear, and she reached a home port practically intact, so far as as her vitals were concerned, and before long she returned to take her place in the first line. While there would be other near misses for fleet actions during the last two years of the war, Jutland would famously be the only time that the two rival fleets would come into contact. After the war, Warspite, much like the rest of the Grand Fleet, would participate in the surrender of the German High Seas Fleet, and then when the war was over, the Royal Navy would find itself in a challenging position, both domestically and on the world stage. While the greatest challenger to the Royal Navy from before the war had been eliminated, two new nations were making it very clear that they planned to start massive new naval construction projects. Both the United States and Japan had already started new expansion projects for their navies as the war came to a close, and it was a distinct possibility that these projects would result in another arms race during the 1920s. The British government, with the massive debt that the nation faced due to the First World War, found itself in a tough position. On the one hand, the security of the empire and imperial prestige, which rested so heavily on the Royal Navy, demanded that they answer the expansion of foreign navies. On the other hand, fiscal reality meant that the empire simply was in no position to dive once again into an incredibly costly effort to outbuild other nations. This reality, and the resurgence of some level of isolationism in the United States, would lead to the Washington Naval Conference." The resulting Washington Naval Treaty would be one of the most successful arms limitation treaties in history. It would place limits on the ability of all nations to build capital ships, battleships, or battlecruisers, and it would put limitations both on the number and size of several other ship classes. The United States and the Royal Navy would be given similar tonnage limitations, with the Japanese Imperial Navy given 60% of their total, and other nations given smaller amounts based on their existing naval tonnage. Working within these new limitations required the Royal Navy to scrap many older ships, which, while perhaps troubling to national prestige, was actually really good for the Royal Navy, and more importantly, the British Treasury. Many of the ships of the Grand Fleet that would be scrapped had experienced heavy usage during the war, and would have required lengthy and costly refits to continue in service. Many of them were also by 1918 simply outdated. The only capital ships that had been part of the Grand Fleet during the war, which would survive long term, would be the Queen Elizabeths and the Royal Sovereign Class. For the Royal Navy and for the Warspite, this agreement really set the stage for the interwar years. The British were not allowed to build a whole host of new capital ships. They were allowed to build what would become the Nelson and Rodney during the early 1920s, but those were just to replace some of the very old ships that the Royal Navy still had on the books. This meant that the Queen Elizabeth class would remain some of the most capable ships in the fleet until the 1930s, behind only the Hood, the Nelson, and the Rodney. One of the main reasons that the ships maintained their position in the fleet was their guns. For all of their flaws, the 15-inch guns that the ships could bring to bear would remain some of the largest afloat until 16-inch guns became more standard before the Second World War. Because the Royal Navy could not build new ships, the warspite would go through two major refits during the interwar period, one starting in 1924 and the other in 1934. These were critical to keeping the ship at a point where it could still be an effective ship in the new naval environments, because even in 1920, some of the decisions that had been made in 1911 and 1912 were already looking outdated. The most troubling issues would be addressed as much as possible during these refits. The first refit would begin in Portsmouth in 1924, and the most important change during this time was the addition of the torpedo bulges, which would give the Warspite its well-known hull shape. There were some discussions before the refit began about the best use of available funds. It was recognized that the ship had two great weaknesses that could be addressed, torpedo protection and deck armor. As aircraft began to become a greater threat, and as engagement ranges for surface ships increased, the thin deck armor of the ship became a greater and greater liability. However, there was only enough money to complete one upgrade, and so the decision was made that torpedo protection was more important. Torpedoes had proven during the war that they were a real danger to capital ships, and it was hoped that these new side bulges would provide much greater protection. It also had the side benefit of fixing the displacement issues that the ship had been saddled with due to its greater weight than originally designed. The torpedo bulges provided greater buoyancy, which brought the ship back to an appropriate point in the water. The other noticeable change to the warspite during this refit was a change in the design of the ship's funnels, which were trunked into one, which prevented some of the problems of smoke around the superstructure. There were, of course, many other smaller changes done to the ship, along with a full repair of many pieces that had been damaged or worn out during the war. After the refit was complete, the Warspite would become the flagship of the Mediterranean fleet, a position that it would remain in until 1930. At that time, the ship would come back to home to join the Atlantic fleet, which at the time was the strongest formation in the Royal Navy, containing all the most modern and powerful ships like Rodney, Nelson, Hood, Repulse, and three refitted Queen Elizabeth-class battleships. It would be during its time in the Atlantic Fleet that the crews of the Warspite and other ships would experience the Inver Gordon Mutiny. This mutiny was caused by the fact that the Royal Navy wanted to cut the pay of sailors. In the aftermath of the First World War, sailor pay had been increased, but by 1931, with the Great Depression in full effect, the decision was made to reduce the pay across the entire British military and for all public service workers this had a greater effect on certain members of the navy who'd been given a victory bonus after the first world war aboard the warspite and this was true among all the ships the mutiny did not involve very much violence if any at all and many of the officers were at least somewhat sympathetic to the concerns of the sailors chief petty officer Sidney Rammel would write it was my opinion right from the word go that it was a disaster to cut the sailors pay by a shilling a day it was such a ferocious blow to them It was like dropping an atomic bomb among them. They couldn't believe it because in those days, our sailors were terribly badly paid. Our fellows were like tramps and and down-and-outs if you compare what they got with the money and amenities that the American Navy had. Royal Marine Norman Clements recorded this time that, quote, There was no major speeches made on the warspite. They was all arguing amongst themselves, some of them saying they wanted to get back to Portsmouth and sort it out from there. There was no violence whatsoever. No one tried to tell men that they were being silly. We didn't know what was happening on other ships. As far as we could tell, all they were doing was spelling ship names out and coming out onto the upper decks and making a den. There were no threats or intimidation. Robert Tyler, one of the men participating in the mutiny, would paint a somewhat rosy picture of events aboard the Warspite. He would say, quote, They did exactly what they wanted to. The men sat on the upper deck playing euchres, dominoes, darts, and kept brewing up tea by the gallon. But there were no organizers or protest leaders on our ship. We were totally apart from all that. There were no incidents of or representatives going to see the captain, and certainly no sabotage of the ship whatsoever. In the warspite, the officers were quite in sympathy with us. Eventually, the ships would move back to Portsmouth and about 400 men would be removed from the Navy. However, the pay cut would be reduced, and the message was clearly given to the men of the fleet that further mutinous actions would be handled much more harshly. In 1930, the Washington Naval Treaty would be extended, with the continued ban on capital ship construction. The new date for new capital ships would become 1937, which meant that the royal sovereigns and the Queen Elizabeth ships would start being scrapped in 1940 and 1942, respectively. With that being almost a decade in the future, the conversation began about further modernization for all of the ships with 15-inch guns. It soon became clear that both the United States and the Japanese were going to begin a lengthy and costly refit of all their existing capital ships, and because of this it was seen as critical to the Royal Navy to bring the Queen Elizabeths in for another round of modernization during the 1930s. This set of changes would also be far more extensive than what had happened in the 1920s, It would result in the Warspite receiving changes that totaled about 2.3 million pounds in cost, which seems like quite a bit, and and it was, but for comparison, the King George V class that would be constructed just a few years later would cost over 7 million pounds each. Throughout this project, the Admiralty would go to great pains to remind everybody who would listen that refits and modernization were not substitutes for new construction, which would have to be restarted as soon as the capital building holiday was over in 1937, but that didn't mean that they didn't try to do the best that they could with what they had. The most drastic change for the warspite would be the replacement of the ship's machinery. By this point, the machinery in the warspite was 20 years old, and the age and mileage were really starting to cause problems. It was decided that the only way to make the ships last for another 10 years was to replace all of it. This brought many advantages beyond just having new bits in the ship. In the 20 years that had passed since the initial construction, machinery technology had advanced greatly, and it was possible to fit the same amount of power in a much smaller area and at a much lower weight. The work required to replace everything was not easy though, and to replace the machinery the entire superstructure of the ship had to be removed. But the benefits of all this work was a drastic reduction in the total machinery weight. The machinery weight was reduced by over 1,300 tons, which would be used to make other changes to the ship. The new machinery was also much smaller, which allowed the boiler rooms to be subdivided by more and smaller watertight areas, giving the ship greater survivability. Finally, the new machinery also made the ship more fuel efficient, with a reduction in fuel consumption at 10 knots of about 38%, which when combined with a slight increase in fuel storage would extend the ship's range from 8,400 nautical miles to over 14,000. One change that was not made at this point was any change to the pressure of the steam being used by the ship. Higher steam pressures were being used in other ships to provide greater power, but in the war spite, many auxiliary systems were not being replaced, and so an increase in steam pressure was not possible. When the superstructure was replaced, it was also changed to a gas-proof citadel type of structure, which had already been seen on the Nelson-class ships. This provided better protection and a very noticeable change to the ship's silhouette, although, at least in my opinion, it was not very pleasing to the eye. The equipment in the superstructure was also upgraded to give the ship greater ability to serve as a fleet flagship, which it would do for most of the Second World War. Changes were also made to the turrets, with a maximum gun elevation increase from 20 degrees to 30 degrees, which increased the maximum range of the guns from 23,000 yards to 32,000 yards. The two surviving torpedo tubes, of which there had originally been four, were also removed at this time, as they had proven to be a very questionable value. Anti-aircraft defenses would also be greatly increased, with new two-pounder pom-poms and additional machine gun mountings fitted. The funnel shape was also once again altered, which allowed for a larger hangar for float planes, allowing the ship to carry two swordfish float planes, which it would do for the opening years of the Second World War. Even with all these changes and the massive weight savings in the machinery areas, the ship would still come out of the refits with a greater displacement than when it arrived. Essentially all the weight savings, plus about 500 tons, were put into increased armor, primarily to protect the deck from high angle threats like plunging gunfire and aircraft ordnance. When the refits were completed in 1937, the ship would go to sea in July to begin another set of acceptance trials, and it was found that once again the ship had steering issues. Basically, the amount of force that was required to bring the rudder back from hard over while at high speed was simply more than what was provided by the steering. Eventually, this problem would be solved, but then it was found that vibrations occurred due to the interaction between the inner and outer propellers while executing a hard turn at high speed. This would eventually be mitigated by altering the speed of the two propellers to be different during these turns, but the solution was at best a band-aid, and there was no real resolution. After the Warspite's modernization, two additional ships of the class, the Valiant and the Queen Elizabeth, would receive similar overhauls, although at that point the war would intervene to prevent additional work. When the war began, Warspite would be in the Mediterranean, acting as fleet flagship stationed in Malta, where it had been stationed since January 1938. However, unlike in the previous war, Warspite, even with all its interwar improvements, was far from the most powerful ships afloat as it entered into its second world war. But its large guns still made it a threat to even far more modern ships. In June 1939, the Mediterranean fleet would come under the command of Vice Admiral Sir Andrew Cunningham and a few months later, the ships of the fleet would be in port waiting for the war to begin. During the early months of the war, there were few actions that the Warspite participated in, mostly due to the fact that Italy had not yet entered the war. During November, she would sail across the Atlantic for convoy escort duty. At this point, powerful escorts were required due to the presence of German service raiders that were present in the North Atlantic. Ships like the battlecruisers Scharnhorst and Gneisenau, and even eventually the Bismarck, would make their way into the Atlantic. This meant that the already thinly spread Royal Navy had to send some of its strongest ships to escort crucial convoys across the Atlantic. In fact, on this trip across, the Warspite would leave its convoy to try and intercept those German battlecruisers after they had sunk an armed merchant cruiser. After Warspite arrived back in the home islands, she would be made into the home fleet flagship to replace the Nelson which had hit a mine and was briefly out of action. This put the ship back at Scapa Flow, but the plan was to send her back to the Mediterranean once again to take over as flagship of that fleet. But then German troops invaded Norway in April 1940, causing Warspite to be redirected to Norwegian waters. It would be in Norway that the ship would see its first major action of the war. On April 13th, the Warspite would begin a journey to Narvik, accompanied by several destroyers. On the way to Narvik, one of the Swordfish aircraft spotted two German destroyers at Jutvik, and one of them, the Kölner, would get the chance to launch torpedoes at the British battleship. Abel Seaman Banks, a member of A-Turret, would later recount what happened next. Quote, "...the Warspite had immediately turned to starboard, suspecting the enemy's intentions would be to torpedo us as we passed." As we did so, we saw the enemy torpedo tracks, but due to us turning towards them and presenting a much smaller target, they missed. In the next few seconds, all hell let loose. Both A and B turrets fired, and we couldn't miss from that range. Imagine if you canned four 15-inch cells, each weighing a ton, packed with high explosives, hitting a thin-skinned destroyer. The Colner was ripped asunder, her remains rapidly sliding beneath the cold, dark waters. The Germans also had several destroyers at Narvik, some of which had been damaged in action against British destroyers in previous days. The British hoped to take advantage of this fact, and Warspite would be joined by nine destroyers to launch an attack against the German ships. Half of the German destroyers would try to make a run for it, but they were slowed by the fact that they would have to constantly weave and dodge to avoid the Warspite's shells, because if even one of them hit a destroyer, it would be damaged to the point of impotence. One German destroyer, the Geiss, was damaged by British destroyers and after losing speed and steering, it became a sitting duck for Warspite's big guns. Warspite then shifted focus to the destroyers that were stationary in Narvik and the 15-inch guns would continue firing until British destroyers moved into the port to finish off what was left. It would be learned from a German prisoner that there had been a German submarine in Narvik when the attack began and that it had escaped in the confusion. This caused Admiral Whitworth to be cautious and withdraw Warspite to prevent it from being attacked. It would later return to gather up wounded sailors from damaged ships and to collect German prisoners. While Warspite and the Royal Navy could not prevent the German capture of Norway, the beating that the Royal Navy gave to the German surface vessels, and especially to its smaller vessels like those destroyers, would limit the capabilities of the German Navy for the rest of the war. After Narvik, Warspite would finally be sent back to the Mediterranean, just in time for Italy to enter the war on June 10, 1940. It was also clear that Malta was not a suitable home for the British fleet due to its proximity to Italy, and so the fleet had already moved to a new home in Alexandria. There, the British ships would be joined by several French ships for the purpose of keeping the Mediterranean open to Allied shipping. This plan would of course fall apart very quickly, first with Italy's entry into the war, and then the French surrender on June 22nd. The French navy was a very valuable ally for the Royal Navy, and it had been able to counterbalance the Italians quite well. Both the French and Italians had built their fleets with the other seen as the most likely enemy, and so the French had provided the Royal Navy with the ability to simply guarantee success instead of having to carry the majority of the load in the Mediterranean. With the French no longer in the war, it would fall to the warspite and and other British ships in the area to meet and beat the Italians. One of the many problems that Admiral Cunningham had at this point, and the one that had to be solved first, was what to do with the French ships that were in Alexandria at the time of the French surrender. Eventually, their captains would be convinced to discharge their oil and then to disarm their weapons and to surrender their ships to the Royal Navy, which was not a, a guaranteed thing when negotiations began. With this concern taken care of, the second and more important issue, the Italian fleet was considered. With the removal of the French, the equations for the Mediterranean fleet became very challenging. It was dangerously short of smaller support vessels, and if the Italians had acted proactively during this period, it was very possible that they would have been victorious. However, even from this point of weakness, it was felt that the British ships could not just sit back and do nothing. To do so would have given control of the sea over to the Italians. And so during the following months, and after some reinforcements arrived, the most important job that the Royal Navy would do was to safeguard convoys, many of which were bound to Malta. The need to protect such convoys would result in the action off of Calabria on July 9, 1940, the first major battle fleet operation of the Second World War. Cunningham hoped to bring the Italian fleet into action using his force of warspite, the unmodernized battleships Malaya and Royal Sovereign, the carrier Eagle, five light cruisers, and 16 destroyers. For this action, it is important to remember that the Malaya and the Royal Sovereign had not gone through any modernization work in the 1930s, which put them at an extreme disadvantage and, as would soon become apparent, made them almost useless in fleet actions. The Italians, under the command of Admiral Capione, would have a more powerful force comprised of two modernized battleships, the Cesar and the Cavour, six heavy cruisers, eight light cruisers, and twenty destroyers. Cunningham, in an attempt to pull the Italians into an attack, split his fleet with Warspite and five destroyers in one group, and the Royal Sovereign, Malaya and Eagle, and ten destroyers in another, and then five cruisers in the third group. As soon as the location of the Italian ships was identified, the Eagle launched a strike, but would not be able to cause any real damage. Then, at 3.08pm, the HMS Neptune, part of that cruiser force, signaled that the Italian ships had been sighted and the cruiser force was being engaged. Immediately, Warspite rang up full speed of 24 knots to move in to assist, but the other large ships rapidly began to fall behind. This put Cunningham in a bit of a dilemma. He could wait for the other ships to catch up and risk the cruisers, or push forward with just his fastest ships and risk being overwhelmed. He chose the latter course of action, and the warspite continued forward. Finally, at around 3.30pm, the Italian cruisers would come within range, but they would very quickly pop smoke and flee. The warspite and the other ships gave chase, although they would first slow to allow the Malaya to start to catch up, with the royal sovereign at this point being seen as a lost cause. About half an hour later, the two Italian battleships were spotted and a gunnery duel began. Warspite was the only British ship with the range to engage the Italian battleships, with the range being about 26,000 yards. The first salvo from the Italian ships would straddle the Warspite, but would not cause any damage. Then Warspite's first salvo would do much the same. Over the next half hour, Warspite would fire 17 salvos and would register precisely one hit. This single hit would go down in history as one of, if not the, longest hits by a surface ship against a moving target at a range of about 26,000 yards, which is 24 kilometers, or about 14.7 miles, which I think is really far. That one shell put some of the Cesar's boilers out of action, reducing her speed, and would cause about 100 casualties. In reality, the Warspite had simply gotten very lucky. But when it occurred, the Italian ships decided to turn tail and run. Again, the Italian ships would throw up a smoke screen, and the British ships would slow out of fear of a possible surprise attack. When they finally resumed the chase, they found that the Italian ships had vanished, disappearing into the Straits of Messina. Cunningham would later write about the performance of the Warspite that, quote, "'Warspite's shooting was consistently good. I'd been watching the great splashes of our 15-inch salvos straddling the target.' when at 4 p.m. I saw the great orange-colored flash of a heavy explosion at the base of the enemy flagship's funnels. It was followed by an upheaval of smoke, and I knew that she had been heavily hit at the prodigious range of 13 miles. He would also later state that, The one 15-inch hit they sustained from the war spine had the moral effect quite out of proportion to the damage. Never again did they willingly face up to the fire of British battleships. The result of the battle was... Kind of disappointing for the Royal Navy, but it just once again was a great example of the challenges faced by surface ships when they were engaging each other during the Second World War, and really also during the First World War, but but also here in the Second. It was simply far too easy for a fleet, when it believed that it was at a disadvantage, to run away, unless aircraft would become involved, but, but most of that would only come later in the war. Near the end of July, Cunningham would receive news that he would be getting some much-needed reinforcements in the form of the HMS Illustrious, a new aircraft carrier, and the HMS Valiant, Warspite's modernized sister ship. Then in September, another unmodernized ship, the Barham, would be sent as well. The most important of these ships were the Illustrious and the Valiant, and with three modernized large ships, Cunningham was able to construct two different groups of ships with the A-team being able to chase down the Italians and bring them to battle, while the older ships, the Barra, Malaya, Ramillies, and Eagle, still able to provide some fire support if they were ever given the time to catch up. With this new striking power, Cunningham really wanted to try and bring the Italian fleet out to battle, a confrontation that it was very likely that the British would win. The Italians, of course, knew the danger that they might be in, and so they refused to leave port and meet the British ships in the open sea. Eventually, the idea would be put in place for a torpedo attack on the Italian base of Toronto. This attack had been first contemplated during the 1930s, and this seemed like the perfect situation to put it into action. On November 6th, the ships would sail out from Alexandria, and after being harassed by some Italian air attacks, would launch a swordfish torpedo attack at 8.40pm. The result was a success, the British would lose just two planes, and they would disable three battleships, one of them for the remainder of the war. The attack was so successful that two of the unmodernized battleships, the Malaya and the Ramillies, were sent back home to help escort Atlantic convoys. The reduction in threat from the Italians gave the British ships a much greater freedom of action, however it did nothing to reduce the vulnerability of the ships to air attack. This was demonstrated on January 10th, 1941, when the illustrious was hit by a Luftwaffe air attack and six 1,000 pound bombs would leave her badly on fire. She was able to make it back to Malta and then eventually on to the United States for repairs, but it it was a close run thing. By 1941, the war was already not going well for the Italians. They had already suffered defeats in Greece and Yugoslavia, and in both cases the Germans had come to bail them out. The British ships, including the Warspite, were hard at work protecting the convoy route between Egypt and Greece to try and keep Greece in the war. The Italians, under German pressure, moved naval assets to try and interdict the flow of supplies. They would sortie out their new battleship Vittorio Veneto, eight cruisers and a dozen destroyers, to a position south of Crete in late March. Cunningham and the British fleet knew about this sortie thanks to signals intelligence from London, and so they moved to intercept. In the fleet at this time was the Warspite, Valiant, Barham, and then the HMS Formidable, which had arrived to replace the Illustrious. They would also be joined by nine destroyers. Unfortunately for the fleet, the Warspite would clog her condensers while leaving port, which meant the speed of the ships was reduced to just 20 knots, which would later cause problems. The British cruisers were able to find the Vittorio Venito at around 11am, and the Italian ship began firing at maximum range on the British ships. The Valiant would move ahead at full speed to try and catch the Italian ship, while the Warspite was still trying to work out her problems. Cunningham would order the Formidable to launch a torpedo attack, even though he would have preferred to wait until his large ships were closer to the Italians so that they were more likely to be able to take advantage of the situation. As soon as the Italian ships saw the air attack, they turned away and fled at top speed. The Warspite would eventually solve the condenser problems and would join the Valiant at top speed, with both ships leaving the bar in behind. The Formidable would launch a second torpedo strike, which claimed to hit the ship three times, although in fact only one torpedo was able to make contact on the Italian battleship, hitting the ship 15 feet below the waterline on the stern. The Italian ship was reduced to a top speed of just 15 knots, and a thousand tons of water flooded in. While still trying to chase down the Italian battleship at about 10.30 in the evening, the British ships would catch sight of two heavy cruisers, the Fiume and the Zara, which were both Zara-class heavy cruisers of 10,000 tons with 8-inch guns, and they were accompanied by several destroyers. The Italian admiral had sent these ships to assist the Pola, another Zara-class cruiser that had been disabled by a British torpedo earlier in the day. However, the Italians had greatly misjudged the location of the British fleet, believing that it was 90 miles away from where it actually was, a mistake that would lead to disaster. The British were able to get very close to the Italian cruisers before opening fire, and death followed. Warspite illuminated them with searchlights and the big guns went to work. Five shells from Warspite's first salvo hit the Zara, causing the ship to be, in Cunningham's words, hopelessly shattered the second salvo hit Fiume, which quickly began listing and would sink just under an hour later, all three British ships would then fire at Zara, turning it into an Inferno, which would later have to be scuttled. Two escorting destroyers were also destroyed. Once again, the men in the turrets did not have any real clear idea about what was happening. All they knew was that they were being asked to fire. Petty Officer Charles Hunter was in Warspite's ex-turret during this time, and he would say, quote, I stood on this platform between the guns. I couldn't see outside. I had eyes only for the working chamber. My turret fired the most shells during Matapan. We fired six on the right gun and five on the left. Inside the turret during firing, you just got a thud. The armor was a foot thick, which acted as a pretty good insulator. The turret was controlled from the bridge. We would just follow a pointer. It moved. You turned the wheel. When the order came, you fired. The engagement with the Italian ships would be the last engagement of the night, and while the formidable would send up scout planes to search for the Vittorio Veneto, it would not be found. On their way back from the devastation of the earlier fighting, the British ships would rescue 900 Italian sailors, although they would have to evacuate the area due to reports of a flight of German torpedo bombers in the area. Before they left, the British would send an open-air radio signal to the Italians with their locations, and 200 more Italians would be rescued by an Italian hospital ship. A total of 3,000 Italians would be lost during the action, with only two British airmen killed. The Italian Navy, already a bit skittish about meeting up with the Royal Navy, would never recover. After the success at Mattapan, the next task of the Mediterranean fleet was to try and assist in the North African campaign by attacking the port of Tripoli. The original idea sent from London was to have the Barham go on a suicide mission to block the port at Tripoli, to essentially scuttle itself in a position that which would block the port from being used. This seems, perhaps, a bit desperate. And it was. But Tripoli was one of the primary supply ports used by Axis forces during the North African campaign. Cunningham refused to accept this plan. He did agree that a shore bombardment on the port by his three battleships could be done, although he felt that it still put them in acute danger. In the early morning of April 21st, the fleet moved in close to Tripoli, with Barham, Valiant, and Warspite ready to do some shore bombardment. An air raid from Malta dropped incendiary bombs, and aircraft from Formidable dropped flares to illuminate the targets, and the firing began. The results were really quite disappointing the British battleships would fire hundreds of 15-inch shells and hundreds more from their 6-inch secondary guns and would only be able to sink a single supply ship and damage a few others. They were unable to inflict any meaningful damage on shore facilities, even though they were heavily targeted. In general, it was incredibly difficult for the spotters aboard the ship, or even in spotter aircraft, to determine where the shells were hitting. It was obviously dark, it being 5 in the morning, but also the smoke and debris caused by the bombing and the shelling obscured port facilities. Fortunately, the British ships were able to make their way back to Alexandria without being heavily attacked from the air, which was Cunningham's greatest fear in the whole operation. While the bombardment of Tripoli was largely a failure, it is worth noting that many such shore bombardment missions at this stage of the war would be equally disappointing. It was simply much more difficult than expected for naval ships to put their explosive power onto land-based targets in an effective manner. Up to this point in the war, the actions that the Warspite had taken part in were largely successful, but they were also largely surface-based actions, the type of tasks that the Admiralty had been planning to use these ships for since they were basically created. This would all change at Crete. After the Germans had assisted the Italians in their campaign for Greece and they were in control of the mainland, they then set their eyes on the island of Crete. Crete is a large island south of the Greek mainland and was considered to be an important piece of real estate that the British would have to defend. If the Germans and Italians captured the island, they would be one step closer to capturing Egypt. The Royal Navy would be called in first to help defend the island, and then to help evacuate what could be saved, when it was clear that the defense would not be successful. This process would take almost two weeks, and from May 21st to June 1st, the waters around Crete would turn into a killing field for Royal Navy ships. Three cruisers and six destroyers would be sunk. The formidable, the Barham, five cruisers and five destroyers would be badly damaged. On May 22nd, Warspite's luck would run out, and it would finally be hit. Shortly after one thirty pm on that day, after having been attacked by wave after wave of aircraft, three ME-109s would dive into an attack. Warspite would be able to dodge two of the bombs, but the third would hit the starboard forecastle. Anti-aircraft gunner Jack Worth would later recall, quote, I remember looking forward from my position and seeing this ME-109 diving towards us. And then this chap on our B-turret was firing away at it with a machine gun. And then this blob came away from beneath the German plane and hurtled my way. It was a bomb, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger, but it didn't hit my position. It took out the four-inch gun beneath me. I looked down and really didn't think much about it in the heat of the action, other than to mentally note that what had been there before was now gone, replaced by a gigantic hole in a mess of flames and wreckage." The bomb would cause a fire in the starboard 6-inch battery, which began to rage out of control. 38 men were killed or would die of their injuries, and 31 were injured. There was never a real threat of the warspite sinking, but the damage that had been caused by the bomb was very problematic. It was simply too extensive for the repair facilities in Alexandria, and so it was decided to send the ship to America. The United States was still officially neutral in the war, but it was providing docking, repair, and refit services to the Royal Navy, and the Warspite would be able to take advantage of this. Warspite would leave through the Suez Canal, and then into the Indian Ocean, then to Manila in the Philippines, then Pearl Harbor, and then finally to Vancouver and Bremerton, Washington. Some of the men would stay with the Warspite while it was in port, although many more would be transported back to Britain. Those who did stay would either be housed near the ship in a nearby barracks, or some even lodged with American families. Abel Seaman Banks would discuss his view of the reception of the men in their new temporary home. Quote, I think every member of the Warspite's crew was, had a home from home. Every day at about 1600 hours, a long queue of cars would form up outside the dockyard gates, waiting for British sailors to come ashore to invite them to their homes. There were also hundreds of applications from American families to entertain us when our leave was announced. While the repairs were being made, improvements were also made to the ship, with new surface, air, and gunnery radars installed, along with a large increase in the ship's anti-aircraft armaments. During the ship's time in America, the war would expand, first with the attack on Pearl Harbor, and then just a short while later, the news would arrive of the sinkings of the battleship Prince of Wales and the battlecruiser Repulse by Japanese aircraft near Malaya. The news that these two ships had been sunk was hard for the crewmen aboard the warspite to hear. Ken Smith would write that, quote, The American papers had these screaming headlines about it, and it was all over the radio. When you are young and you are gung-ho and your attitude is, right, let's go and get them and sort them out. But the loss of these two ships sort of brought home the fact that war is not quite that simple. It is a serious business in which the enemy is not to be taken lightly. You have to remember, this was in the days of the British Empire, which really meant something. But this was the end of it, really. Perceptions were changed by the sinking of those two ships. The Royal Navy had protected that empire for so long, but it was not invulnerable. It was because of the sinking of the Repulse and the Prince of Wales that we suddenly had a lot more anti-aircraft weapons put on the warspite. We realized how vulnerable a battleship might be to aircraft." End quote. On January 7th, 1942, a month after Pearl Harbor, the Warspite would leave Bremerton. After some sea trials, Warspite would head south along the American coast and then out into the Pacific. On February 20th, the ship would reach Sydney. The time spent in Sydney was an interesting time for the crew. They knew that they would be called upon to participate in the fighting, but with the recent examples of how battleships would fare under Japanese air attack, there was great concern about what the future held. Ken Smith would write, quote, It was a grim time. Singapore had just fallen and the Japanese were rampaging everywhere. We didn't know what was happening to us or, or where we might go. I don't think they had decided. The whole idea of sending a battleship without proper air cover anywhere near the Japanese was not on. It was a bit of a humiliating time, really. The Aussies did feel let down, but on the whole, they treated us pretty well. In those days, the Australian bars opened at six in the morning and closed at six at night, and so you can imagine people were well entertained. The defaulter's line aboard ship was certainly long, and I wasn't much of a drinker, so I went to the cricket and also sightseeing. When Warspite joined the British ships in the Pacific, the collected Royal Navy strength in that theater was inadequate, to say the least. Inadequate maybe being very generous, actually. With the losses that the Royal Navy had suffered during the first two years of the war, and what was still required in home waters to protect against German attacks, there simply was not much left available for service in the Pacific. Essentially, every ship in the Eastern Fleet under Sir James Somerville was outdated and bordering on obsolescence, with the exception being warspite. However, it was also the only Royal Navy fleet in the region, and so it was important that it was not lost to a Japanese attack, which would have left the entire Indian Ocean devoid of a Royal Navy presence. Much like what Cunningham had done in the Mediterranean earlier in the war, Somerville would separate his ships based on speed and capability. Force A would be made up of faster ships like the Warspite, the Carriers, Indomitable and Formidable, two Heavy Cruisers, two Light Cruisers, and six Destroyers. Force B was made up of four Royal Sovereign-class battleships, the carrier Hermes, three light cruisers, and eight destroyers. The Royal Sovereigns were similar in age to the Warspite, but they had not received the same extensive modernizations during the 1930s, which meant that they were slow and outdated. While these two forces did have some capabilities, the 40 fighters and 60 torpedo bombers that were available from the carriers failed in comparison to what the Japanese strength would be when they moved into the Indian Ocean under the command of Vice Admiral Nagumo. He would bring with him five fleet carriers, which could launch 100 fighters and 240 bombers. They were also piloted by some of the best and most experienced naval aviators in the world, veterans of campaigns in China and then Pearl Harbor, and other subsequent operations. They were also escorted by four battleships, all of which had received modernization refits, much like the Warspite. The commitment of all of these ships into the Indian Ocean represented a massive imperial naval operation, involving a large percentage of its total strength. Somerville had no hope of matching the Japanese, and in fact his entire goal was simply to survive. But there was one small possibility, although a very risky one, of striking the Japanese at night. And so on April 4th, Somerville tried to get Force A into position to launch a nighttime torpedo strike on the Japanese ships. However, while repositioning, the heavy cruisers Cornwall and Dorsetshire were spotted by Japanese scout planes. The results were inevitable, and the two British cruisers were set upon by 88 Japanese aircraft and sunk. Luckily for the rest of the British forces, they were not found by the Japanese planes. A British Catalina flying boat would spot some ships moving towards Force A, which allowed Somerville time to move away, and the nighttime strike would be called off. Instead, Nagumo's forces were already moving the opposite direction to launch an attack on Tricolomy, where the British carrier Hermes was in port. The resulting strike would sink the British ship and an Australian destroyer. The Japanese ships would soon leave the Indian Ocean for other operations, and while they had failed to clear the Royal Navy from the region, they had pushed it away from the Japanese attacks in Indonesia. Warspite and other British ships would be moved further west. The Warspite would spend most of the following months in Kilindini, near Mombasa, halfway down the eastern coast of Africa. Here the ship would lead a mostly uneventful life, although there was always a concern about an enemy attack. One of the facts about life aboard the Warspite during this time is that it was quite uncomfortable in the heat. Here is Ken Smith again to describe what it was like. Quote, She was a gigantic sweatbox. We're talking extreme temperatures closed up at an action station in a six inch gun battery for hours. There was little or no ventilation. You just sweated and sweated. Hundreds of the crew went down sick. The sick bay was always full. You got Dobby itch, you got prickly heat, all sorts of lumps and bumps. It was those conditions that did it for me, ultimately. If you had any sense, you got yourself a bucket and filled it with water from the shower room taps. That water was used for your first wash of the day and to bathe in later. Someone might give you a tot of rum to borrow it. The bucket thing was against regulations, but in such circumstances, a lot of things went by the board. During early 1943, Warspite would once again be recalled to home waters. After Midway and some of the American attacks in the Pacific, their risk from the Japanese Navy to British possessions in the Indian Ocean was reduced, and with their growing Allied strength in Europe and Africa, it was determined that Warspite would go back into the Mediterranean to support the invasion of Sicily. A bit of fun info taken from Warspite by Ian Ballantyne about the journey back in the spring of 1943. Quote, during the voyage, midshipman Corbett was tasked with calculating the miles steamed by Warspite since the beginning of the war. After arriving at Greenwich, he recorded the following figures in his journal. 1939, from the declaration of war in September, 12,984 miles. 1940, 43,978 miles. 1941, 25,253 miles. 1942, 61,481 miles, and in 1943, 17,168 miles. It had really done some distance. In the Mediterranean, the Warspite and several other battleships under the name Force H would provide shore bombardment support for the invasion. Warspite would be joined by Valiant, Nelson, and Rodney on the bombardment team, while King George V and howe were in reserve. On July 9th, the ships were in position for their bombardment, and two days later, the landings on Sicily were underway. A few days later, Warspite would call into Malta, the first Royal Navy battleship to do so in almost three years. During this period, the British ships would spend most of their time south of Sicily to guard against the possibility of an Italian fleet attack um, while the invasion was underway. However, the attack would never come, and instead the ships would be subjected to several attacks from the air. Warspite would be called upon to bombard the Sicilian city of Catania before withdrawing back to Malta at top speed. It would be in the aftermath of this bombardment that Admiral Cunningham, from his position on Malta, would message the Warspite Operation well carried out, there is no doubt that when the old lady lifts her skirt, she can run. Which is where the Warspite would receive her most popular nickname, the Old Lady. Then, on September 2nd, at Reggio, Force H would provide support for the invasion of the Italian mainland. Then, on September 7th, to the north, they would provide support for the landings at Salerno. All of these bombardments were carried out successfully, and while there were many air attacks, the Warspite would be able to avoid several torpedo and bombing attempts. On September 10th, with the surrender of the Italian government, Warspite and Valiant would meet up with what was left of the Italian fleet as it surrendered to the Royal Navy. They would take the surrender of 5 Italian battleships, 9 cruisers, 14 destroyers, 19 torpedo boats, and 35 submarines. While this represented an important milestone for the Royal Navy, and the removal of the only real surface threat in the Mediterranean, the fighting for Italy was far from over, and in fact the landings at Salerno were going pretty poorly. On September 14th, Warspite and Valiant were back near the landing beaches to provide more fire support, and once again they were the focus of German air attacks. Then, at around 2 p.m. on September 15th, Warspite's luck finally ran out. Three glider bombs would make it through the efforts of the anti-aircraft guns, one would miss near the aft, one would impact the water near amidships, ripping open the torpedo bulges, and one would hit amidships. Each bomb contained almost 3,000 pounds of explosives, with predictable devastation. Three American tugs started towing Warspite at four knots, while inside, Warspite's men did all they could to keep the ship afloat. The machinery was not running, so there was no power, but they did the best they could under these circumstances. 200 men were constantly required for bailing duty, while many others were busy with other repairs. Luckily, the ship was not the target of any further air attacks, while it was being slowly tugged back to Malta. After successfully making it into port, Captain Packer would write, "...there was so much fatigue." For no one had much standoff during the past few days, and since the hit, everyone has been on their feet, either at the guns, hauling in wires, pumping, or shoring up. Bailing out compartments with buckets in this heat is hard work, but they are marvelously cheerful, willing, and fatalistic. The facilities at Malta were totally insufficient to effect any real repairs on the ship, and so on November 1st, Warspite began a slow journey to Gibraltar under tow. It would take a week for the ship to reach the rock and be put into dry dock. The whole time, the Tugs and Warspite were covered by four destroyers with fighters on call to handle any airborne surprises. Just a few weeks later, Warspite would be out of dry dock and began some working up after having rotated out the entire crew. However, the ship would not be involved in any real action before heading back to Rossith in March 1944 for more extensive repairs. By June 1944, the warspite had been repaired as much as was really possible. She was an old ship, and the years and the mileage and the damage were really catching up with her. X-turret had been permanently disabled, and a concrete caisson had been placed over the hole made by the bomb off Salerno. She was still capable of shore bombardment, which would be the role given to the ship during the invasions of Normandy. She would join the thousands of ships off the coast of the invasion beaches, with Warspite and the Eastern Task Force given the task of supporting the British at Sword Beach. Warspite's target were German guns near La Havre, and she would be given the honor of firing the first shell, with the whole bombardment beginning shortly thereafter. Throughout the day of the invasion, Warspite was on call for fire support missions and would fire at a variety of targets. There was some firing from German shore batteries, but no serious damage was caused. Over the course of two days, 300 shells would be fired from the 15-inch guns, expending most of what was stored on board, and so the Warspite would move back to Portsmouth to reload. On June 9th, Warspite would support American troops to relieve some of the American battleships who were also running low on ammunition, and had moved back to England to restock. Warspite would receive high praise from the American commanders, and during a two-hour bombardment period, 96 rounds would be fired at German artillery positions. After these bombardment efforts, Warspite was in desperate need of replacement guns, and so on June 12th, she moved through the Straits of Dover on the way to Rossith for repairs. During this transit, the first for a British battleship since the start of the war, a magnetic mine would explode near the ship, causing serious damage to the steering. The helm would jam hard, and the ship would turn wildly, and several hundred tons of water would flood on board. With counter-flooding and some restarted engines, the ship would be able to limp north at 7 knots and arrive at Rossith on June 14th. At Rossith, workers did the best they could on the ship. The largest issue was the shafts because they needed to be straightened, but the workers did not want to fully remove them due to it being a lengthy process. At this point, the ship was solely focused on shore bombardment, and so as long as it could move at even reasonable pace, and the guns still worked, it could fulfill that role, and so quick repairs were done. By late August, with shafts in mostly working order and everything else patched up as much as possible, and new guns, Warspite once again was off the French coast near the port of Brest. Warspite would fire over 200 shells into Brest to try and soften up the German defenses before the American attack which would finally capture the port. Then on September 10th, she bombarded Laharve in preparation for a British attack. In October, she would be involved in her final fire missions off the Belgian island of Wolkeren near Antwerp. There, on November 1st, at roughly 5.25pm, she completed fire missions after firing 353 15-inch shells in support of the attack on the island. They would be the last shots fired by Warspite's main guns. In February 1945, Warspite was placed in reserves, being too old and far too battered for proper repairs and the refit that would have been required to make the ship ready for further fighting in the Pacific. During this time, the ship was moored at Spithead, and it was during this time that many of the remaining crew members who had served aboard the ship during its time in combat began to leave. Petty Officer Pearson would record that, quote, I left in April 1945, lugging my kit box, my toolbox, and my hammock. Despite all that stuff, I somehow managed to turn at the bottom of the brow to give her a last look. I was a bit choked, but glad to leave her as well. If they no longer needed the warspite, then the war must be coming to an end. Fifteen months later, she was brought into Portsmouth Harbor to have guns and other equipment removed before being sold for scrap. There were some calls for her to be turned into a museum ship, but these were not successful. In September 1945, the ship's battle ensign would be presented to the St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh. In March 1947, tugs would arrive to take the warspite for scrapping. However, en route, a storm hit the channel and the tow lines would break and the ship began to flood. A Daily Telegraph reporter would write that, quote, "...I flew over the Warspite and her escort late last night as they crept slowly along the channel through heavy weather within sight of the shore 20 miles west of the lizard. The tugs were straining at the tow ropes fore and aft, pulling almost at right angles to starboard with the ship's bows to the coast. Their position hardly changed as we circled and the tugs appeared to be doing little more than hold the great battleship in the great heavy seas." Both tugs were pitching so steeply that at times, their screws were out of the water. To avoid endangering those involved, the decision was made to tug the ship into Mounts Bay near Penzance to wait out the storm. However, during further storms in April, Warspite's anchor chain broke and the ship would run aground in Prussia Cove. After some efforts to refloat the ship were unsuccessful, it would not be until 1950 that what was left of the ship would be refloated. For some, this last act of defiance by the ship was welcome. Lieutenant Banks, who had been on the ship in its last tour of the Mediterranean, would say, I nearly wept with joy when I learned no further effort would be made to get her off. The Warspite's epitaph was surely she died as she lived, fighting. But for others, like Chief Petty Officer Charlie Pearson, a certain bit of perspective prevented any great emotional response to the ship's end. Quote, at Salerno, when she was hurt badly, we all suddenly realized we might lose our home, so we wanted the old girl to pull through with a passion. But when it came time to get rid of her, I can't say any of us was out there waving banners. We were glad the war was over and wanted to get on with our lives. Had she been an American ship, I have no doubt they would have preserved her as a museum and made a movie about her, the whole works, but not the British. Everybody loves our naval history except us. We truly are an unsentimental bunch. Sometimes it's a pity, for some things like the Warspite might actually be worth preserving. A memorial to the ship now stands nearby, a small reminder of a ship that had served its purpose, defending a worldwide empire for 30 years and some of its darkest days. It reads, HMS Warspite, 1915-1945, ran aground and broken up on these rocks 1947, her final haven. Known to all who served aboard her as the Grand Old Lady. May she, with many gallant shipmates, rest in peace.